you've still got to maintain that required visual reference uh, and visibility. So therefore, your your run into the fire may not be as it would be by day because you need to maintain that visibility, which is harder, and avoid the smoke. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Welcome back to the Rotary Wing Show. This is episode 65. A big thank you to you for taking the time out to find out a little bit more about how our industry works and go behind the scenes. On previous episodes, and it's going back quite a fair way now, we talked about uh, night vision devices and MVGs, and we've also covered uh, at one stage there aerial firefighting. Today we get to combine the two topics as we find a little bit more about the establishment of a night aerial firefighting capability here in Australia. So more about that soon, and we'll just cover off some, some quick news. So this is now June 2018 as I'm recording this, and uh, last month we had Rotatech uh, 2018. That's the Australian, uh, probably the biggest Australian expo here on the Sunshine Coast in Australia, and it happens every two years for the, the uh, helicopter world here locally. So I got to go up on the, the Saturday and have a look around, and one of the talks there was uh, Tim Tucker from Robinson Helicopters. He gave a presentation there about the uh, history of the company. And it was great. You know, I haven't seen many of those photos before. So Andrea, who was with me, said it's, it's pretty similar to the presentation they do on the uh, safety training courses. Uh, but yeah, it was good seeing it for the first time and seeing some of the original photos of the uh, the very first R22. And uh, the, the one that went in, in the drink in the recovery process. And then the progression uh, through their, their line. So that's interesting to hear that. Uh, straight from Tim. After a break, Tim uh, came back and gave a presentation on uh, Vortex Ring Recovery and I guess dialing in on the uh, the VCHARD uh, recovery that he's uh, been across and, and picked up from uh, Switzerland and then now Robinson is uh, basically putting that forward as the, the recovery that they're teaching and I believe there's a Helicopter Safety Council that's bringing that online as well. So again, I haven't had much chance to, to go and, and practice that, or basically no chance. It's, uh, I guess, I'm, unlike many folks, reluctant to go out and, and try something for the first time at uh, 2,000 feet and, and zero airspeed. But uh, I've seen the YouTube video before, which has a Alarma helicopter with a spray rig fitted up in the Swiss Alps where they go through and, and demonstrate it. And I, I guess the, the key point from the talk that I took away that I didn't pick up from watching the video was the amount of movement that you need sideways. So obviously what we're talking about here is instead of uh, lowering the collective and, and flying forward to get out of a vortex ring condition, we're talking about side slipping, so crossing controls with uh, opposite pedal and cyclic to move the helicopter sideways. And I kind of, um, I guess, made the assumption that what we're trying to do is move the helicopter sideways to get to the still air to recover. But hearing uh, Tim talk now and actually going back through and watching the video as he uh, talks through it on stage, it's really just trying to move the helicopter sideways enough so that the uh, the flow coming back up through the rotor disc or moves back underneath and you actually get the inflow from underneath. So that's, uh, yeah, it took much more better understanding and, yeah, much more willing to give that a shot because it's just a matter of moving the helicopter sideways just a couple of feet to get that change in airflow through the disc. And Tim, was, it was interesting too. He was talking about how they're actually, you know, one, they'll go out and, and, and practice and show people. 
but now on approaches as they're, they're doing the circuits, uh, they'll call out you know vortex ring and get the student to basically cross the controls, side slip sideways on approach, and uh, again just build up that that muscle memory. Uh, so if it does happen at low level, they've got that uh, training in place. So that was pretty useful for me just to sort of find out a bit more and, and get my head around that. There's a couple of interesting sessions which were, again, really out of the normal for the stuff that I'd normally sort of be able to, to read and, and talk about. Uh, so there's a couple there on helicopter insurance uh, and the considerations there that brokers go through. There was one on, on finance and how to you know finance helicopters uh, in terms of purchase costs, but also even in uh, in transit. So in many cases, the finance company won't put a loan down uh, and insure it until it's in, in country. Uh, and you basically have bridging finance. But the one that I thought was interesting, and again, it's just one of those things you don't know what you don't know, and I've never actually thought about it before, was on uh, fuel hedging, and basically hedging against the price of fuel. It only makes sense if you've got a, a company where the fuel bill obviously is hitting a, a certain amount. But what you can do is there's different financial instruments out there where you can uh, essentially bet against or, or hedge against the fuel price rising. So rather than having a very variable fuel price over a year or a period, a couple of years where it goes up and down with the market, uh, you can essentially use these other instruments to level out the variation so you have more of a, a constant control on what your uh, fuel price is going to be. And I can see for a you know, big organization that would be something definitely to look at. But it's just funny, you know, again, something I've never ever thought about would be uh, trying to, to hedge against the fuel price so you have a a more constant and predictable cost accounting for your operating hours. If you are on the email database that you can grab off the website when you download the list of helicopter books from rotarywingshow.com, you will see an email I put out about the chance I had to fly one of the brand new Bell 505s here in Australia. So yeah, that came off and I was really lucky. I got to fly from the Gold Coast down to Armadale and then Armadale to Sydney in a brand new Bell 505. And when we jumped in, it had, you know, essentially 36 hours on the airframe. Uh, so that's the newest thing I've ever flown uh, by, by shore. And that was, uh, yeah, Dan uh, Queston. He was the Australasian uh, Business Development Director for, for Bell. He was a pilot on the day. And I basically asked in the email that I pushed out for any questions that you had about the, the 505 uh, and its performance, and I'd try and find the answers. So I've written all that up, and that will appear possibly in about another week or so. Uh, as an article in uh, Australian Aviation Magazine. So I'll try and push that out as a link. And hopefully I've answered most of the questions that, that folks submitted there on the email. Look, a great experience. And again, I probably can't talk too much about it until the, the article's out, but it's definitely a future uh, episode there, possibly with Dan, getting him on to, to share uh, what he knows about the helicopter and its development and uh, what I was able to sort of see and experience uh, flying it down. So more on that as it comes out. So yeah, the other good news with Australian Aviation, and they were the magazine, obviously the staff there who hooked up the the, uh, the test flight in the 505, they're actually looking to syndicate these episodes as well on their website. Uh, so you'll be uh, you know joined by a bit of a bump in the number of people who are sitting alongside listening to these episodes uh, with you. World Helicopter Day 2018 is coming up this August. And again, so it's the third Sunday in August each year. And this year in 2018, it's falling on Sunday the 19th of August. Event locations at the moment, we've got uh, confirmed events for uh, in Australia. We've got Brisbane, Newcastle and Perth. In Canada, there's a, uh, one in British Columbia. There's uh, one in Hong Kong. In the US, there's Arkansas, Pennsylvania uh, and New York. 
in Scotland at Kinloss, England in Somerset, and in South Africa at Johannesburg. So again, you know, it's just a chance to encourage everyone to get involved. It's a really easy way for those organisations taking part. You know, not only to get some uh, local PR uh, in your local community and by having people come in uh, and have a look around at it. I'd say, you know, an example of it would be an open hangar event, but it's also uh, good global visibility, not just for the industry, for, but uh, for the people taking part. So it's a good excuse for a, a barbecue or a party. Uh, if there's someone in your company who looks after the PR, all the events or marketing, then, you know, please make sure that they, they know about uh, World Helicopter Day. Here in Australia, the AOPA will be coming on board for the Australian event locations and they'll be offering kids at the events free membership to their junior aviator program. All the details are up at worldhelicopterday.com and we're definitely looking for more event locations. There's no cost to be involved and you can be pretty creative with events and we'll list them on the global schedule and you can submit them there on the website. As I said at the top of the show, today's interview is all about night aerial firefighting. Richard Butterworth from Kestrel Aviation in Victoria, Australia is going to be the guy who takes us along the journey that Kestrel's been through in developing and becoming the first organisation in Australia cleared to conduct night firefighting operations under night vision devices. This is actually recorded a couple of weeks ago before Rotatech, but the guys wanted to hold off on the announcement to share the news there at the expo. And now we can go ahead and put this episode out. Have a think now before you hear the interview about how you feel personally about flying around bushfires low level at night on goggles performing water drops. And then again, go through the same exercise and how you feel about the operations after you've heard the information that Rich talks about in the interview and see if your opinion has changed any. Rich, a lot of folks won't know our background, but you actually were my instructor on a Huey conversion course. It was yourself, Dave Lamb, and Ian Gordon. Uh, so that's where I first met you uh, through Army Aviation. But how did you get into Army Aviation yourself? Well, Mick, I, uh, look, I was actually at university, and uh, I was focused on doing some sort of flying. Uh, it was predominantly Air Force, like most teenagers uh, going through school. And then uh, I decided to take a sabbatical, went to university and, and studied aerospace engineering at uh, University of Sydney. And, and in my third and fourth year, um, back then, uh, ADFA um, engineers, uh, ADFA couldn't uh, meet the needs or the requirements of uh, aerospace engineering at uh, the location in Canberra. So they essentially delegated that responsibility to, uh, to, uh, to, to the University of Sydney and RMIT. And so we had two engineers, cut a long story short, and one of them was Army and was interested in flying post his ADFA or tertiary qualification. Uh, and that's how the conversations really began and me being exposed to him and, and giving me an insight into uh, helicopter aviation within Defence and within Army. And so that, you know, after a couple of years off after university, bumming around the world, yeah, that's, uh, I took up that opportunity in uh, 1996. So, you know, that sort of sums up where my flying career began, you know, 22 years, and then obviously the four years sort of associated with university. So it's been, yeah, a good 26 years of aviation. All right. Yeah, I can't remember. I didn't know that was your background. I knew you had a fairly technical bent because there's there's one memory through training. I remember is I think you were working out on a whiteboard the uh, the angle of bank you had to be at before the rotor blade was below the uh, the skids of the Huey, 
And uh, I was thinking, oh, okay, this guy knows some maths. <laughs> and I think you were working that out. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, look, university was a, was a battle. I mean, I wouldn't put myself, I certainly wasn't at the top of the class, you know. It, it, was, it was a hard graft. Uh, but, and I didn't, to be honest, didn't really enjoy what I was doing at the time, uh, although I did complete. Where it, where it really came to the fore is when you do become particularly an instructor because you then, you know, you, you need to understand it. You have a deeper understanding technically, you know, aerodynamics and so forth to be able to um, then get that message across to the, in the training environment. Uh, and that's where, the, that's where that tertiary education really, um, yeah, came to the fore. And, and on top of that is on a, you know, pedantic, you know, my wife will say there's an element of OCD. So I'm very, very, I, I can get lost in the, <laughs> in the technical detail and I don't mind it. I do like to involve myself in that sort of depth. So where again, so instructing, um, a lot of the things I've done in my career to date uh, have really levered off, again, that personality trait and that tertiary education has really assisted. Well, just quickly touching on your army flying then, because obviously you've spent a, a lot of time uh, since then doing other things, which will basically lead into what we're going to talk about today with the, the MVG uh, firefighting. Uh, so you, you pretty much would have Bogerville been your main cutting your teeth then through through the army? Was that sort of when you were actually in the in the unit there at one seven one? Was that your major experience? Yeah, it was, I was very fortunate because the unit hadn't done any deployments for quite some time. Morale was quite low, and then Bogenville, which was you know, for those that are listening, was about a year or so before Timor kicked off. So um, yeah, Bogenville was. Uh, was a fantastic opportunity again for me and and my peers uh, at that time. Um, you know, I saw multiple deployments. I think six deployments to Bougainville. And as a young pilot, uh, you know, I, I did nearly a thousand hours in country. And it was while it was challenging flying, taking the you know the UH one H to its limits. It wasn't it wasn't the high DA of mainland Papua New Guinea. Um, but it was still very, very challenging within that sort of I would call it was it was mostly weather and and and, and you know performance and payload and decision making. It was just a yeah, it was a terrific opportunity. And so yeah, and that really covered a lot of my operational career because uh, Bougainville lasted for oh, oh I'd have to say probably nearly three and a half years. So uh, and then the, um, on top of that there was uh, the Sydney Olympics, which uh, the squadron was played a very significant part in the Joint Incident Response Unit out of Sydney. Um, and then, yeah, in uh, 2001, I um, uh, turned to instruction. So that's when my instructing career took off. Excuse the pun. That's <laughs> where you had to, to suffer through uh, training folks like me. And again, yeah, because I pretty much got to the unit straight after all that sort of gear. So, you know, when we arrived, all these stories of the, the golden years of, you know, exactly that, Bougainville and Sydney and, uh, you know, yourself and Toddy Evans and James Brown, all, all those sort of folks, you know, especially as a brand-new pilot walking into a unit, there's all these people that, you know, all this flying experience and feeling very, you know, underwhelmed and sort of trying to learn the job at the same time. So, yeah, we did um, – Yeah. Also, so you did the instructor role, and, again, the last time we flew – I haven't looked at my logbook, but probably 15 years ago, I think you did an MBG dual check uh, with me uh, in the areas north of uh, Oki there. 
And the one thing I remember from that flight is I obviously messed up an approach to a hoist or something or other. And uh, the one thing I still remember you, you saying then that I take with me now and I've told other people when doing MVG flying is you said, look, just always remember that, you know, under MVGs, Mick always flies too fast, Rich always flies too fast. We just always all fly too fast on MVGs. So that was kind of something that stuck with me <laughs> from, you know, just one of those funny little things that is something you say as you're out there flying around. Yeah, look, and that, you know, that comment stuck with me too. And I learned that's learning from your mistakes. You know, the first dark hole that you go into and, you have, and you're and you not overly proficient, you would have had a break between flying. And that was one of the, actually, the difficulties of Bougainville is that they wouldn't allow, operationally, we weren't allowed to do a lot of MVG. So a lot of our MVG and instrument flight uh, proficiency really suffered during that period. Uh, however, what it, it did teach you was what you needed to think about when you were, uh, when you had your skills had perished somewhat, what you needed to think about prior to going into that environment again. Um, and yeah, I still use that today. I always think to myself because, you know, essentially you, the MVG scan is so critical with judging rate of closure. And invariably that scan is not required during the day because of our peripheral vision. And so, it, yeah, absolute perishable skill. So, yeah, on every approach, first approach, yeah, just fly it slow. And invariably, it's too fast anyway. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Then you had a, real, a big change. And again, I get a bit fuzzy on your career from, from here because we sort of um, then you know, went different ways. But you then ended up in Tiger. Uh, and, I mean, that, that's a pretty, that was a pretty big jump then, uh, I'm guessing, from, from what you were currently doing then into, into the Tiger world and developing that capability. Yeah, it was. Uh, it certainly, I mean, I wasn't a reconnaissance pilot. At the time, you know, I obviously jumped into the, well, not obviously, I, I jumped into the contract side again for those who are listening. So Tiger was an interesting project where Defence was now embracing um, uh, contract uh, training support to offset uh, their own uh, resources and allow you know, all of the Army instructors to be at the, at the pointy end uh, versus uh, filling training positions. So on the contract side, but again, that was a fantastic opportunity to be developing training courseware, developing instructional techniques for a tandem seat cockpit, uh, a, a simulator uh, that was tandem seat, but the way the simulator worked um, because of the focus between the two seats being very difficult, it was actually two separate simulators for the individual seats of one aircraft. So again, instructing in that environment presented great challenges and look i was just i was working with a hand-picked bunch of terrific people that you know were mentors to me and uh and uh i enjoyed every bit of it and from an instructional point of view it, it certainly you know it it introduced me to the electronic cockpit and that sort of high-end simulator the training environment so it was yeah, it was a, a, a again a very fortunate experience did you go to france with that I did. I was lucky enough to go to France for a little over a year where we were based in uh, Aix-en-Provence, so in uh, proximity to Marignan, which was the then uh, Eurocopter manufacturing plant for Tiger and training, um, now Airbus, obviously. And, um, yeah, so we were there to essentially conduct our technical training, do some flying assist with simulator development and write all of the training courseware, which was a key deliverable to that contract prior to returning to Australia and then uh, executing that training for Army pilots. 
Right, let's jump straight forward now um, and bridge that gap then just quickly. Uh, so you're now the head of training at Kestrel Aviation. So you want to just quickly talk, uh, just highlight you know, your job titles between there and, and where you are now, and I guess what are your roles and responsibilities here at Kestrel? Yes, so uh, 2009, I, I jumped out into the EMS world in South Australia with Australian helicopters because of my background and, again, timing, you know, you would, I was just the right person, right time. I got back into the check and training roles, which then evolved into Envis uh, instrument ratings uh, and proficiency. And it also, um, you know, senior pilot roles and then also into um, project roles such as tendering activities and so forth for the company. So that gave me quite a broad, started to increase my skill set, so to speak. And then I transitioned to flight operations, a flight operations standards role and played it well had a key role in the introduction of the aw139 in support of ambulance victoria i was then a flight instructor flight examiner 139 and then that evolved into in 2015 flight training manager for Austheli, which then became babcock onshore and across all that time i was operating Envis under you know a diverse range of operational roles in different environments and then in 2000 and late 2016, I had some yeah, meetings with Kestrel Aviation and I uh, started with uh, Kestrel in 2017, as you correctly stated as their head of training and to also with a vision to develop a, an Envis capability uh, and assume that senior pilot or senior Envis pilot role. So you've never been uh, bored, <laughs> that's for sure. It sounds like you've uh, had a challenge all the time. Yeah, no, look, it was, a, it was an ideal time to... Now, Kestrel was looking to, to broaden its operational scope and that was reacting to the wants and needs of the, uh, their contractors and the fire agencies. And also, one of Kestrel's, as in you know, most organisations, one of their... You know, they're always trying to demonstrate innovation, uh, keeping ahead of the curve. And this was a yet yet another way that you know, Kestrel was looking to improve in itself uh, and expand the expand their scope into into the night and bring the bring the night operations into the fire ground. Awesome. Let's just, so let's jump then into MVG uh, firefighting, and we'll make the crux of the interview about that. Now, looking at it just from the outside. You know, it looks like a risky activity uh, and not everyone's doing it. So you, you sort of ask, okay, well, how come everyone isn't doing it? And I guess what's the justification for then trying to do what can be a pretty complex job during the day uh, and then, you know, try and do that at night time? So what's the, if you want to take through the business case? Well, yeah, so understanding the way fire, particularly aerial firefighting works, it's a, and this is, this is my own spin on it, it's one of the, the key issues is that the fire agencies tend not to use all of the available time of the day. So that's number one. And because of, there's almost an operational lag, a six hour operational lag, as I like to call it, where by the time all the information comes in, so by the time any sort of firefighting is finished by the end of the day, and in the summer that's going to be 8.30 uh, p.m. we're talking because of daylight saving. By the time all of the information is brought in, processed and so forth people then get sufficient rest get together in the morning 
they have all their operational meetings and you know asset jurisdiction and resource tasking. There's this real lag into when the aerial firefighting capability gets going again. So this is one of the issues: is that not just nighttime, but how do we exploit all of the operational hours of the day? And when you consider the nighttime, as as most people will know, a, a fire, particularly the fire ground, is a lot more complicit or benign at night. So we tend to have drops in winds, we have higher relative humidity and, and lower temperatures, and all that makes for a less dynamic fire ground. So if you are able to maintain a foothold, you can, you can actually have, you know, it, it becomes a lot more effective uh, at night. But ob- again, as you've mentioned, that does introduce inherent risks of lack of visibility. So, you know, and that's not just for those on the ground, but uh, also, you know, flying operations. So that's really, I guess, that was the business case from the agency's point of view. And there's also a perception, you know, with social media that the public uh, and the agencies see NVG firefighting occurring overseas. So therefore, the questions are naturally asked, why aren't we doing that? Why does everything stop when when the sun goes down? So that essentially became the business case. And, and it's also to important recognise you talked about risk. And, yeah, there is risk, but that's MVG flight. And I think it's really important to understand that Kestrel and the industry itself uh, was always intending and is operate, operating under a regulatory framework that's been alive and kicking for the last 10 years. Now, predominantly, this has been in the, the HEMS law enforcement and SAR sectors. But all we were doing was intending and have taken proven techniques and procedures and integrating them to the fire ground. We're not changing the rules in terms of visibility, in terms of fatigue. And so all we're really, everything that we wanted to do was essentially we could do under the current rule set. All we were asking to do was take on water and then release water and then conduct an overshoot from a basic HLS. So you can sort of see where I'm going is that we weren't, going to accept anything inherently more dangerous we were going to operate under a rule set that already existed yeah sure so you're taking basically bits from those different you know legislations and things operations already exist and then just adapting it and i guess when we talk about risk too like you know there's inherent risk in just starting a helicopter and going anywhere and that's why i talk about business case too is obviously you know you're not going out there with untrained crews for the first time and giving it a crack and that's what we're going to talk through here is how you actually stood up that that sort of capability Yes, absolutely. So um, to answer that question, yeah, um, once the need was identified and, and so as I commenced employment with Kestrel, we, if we, the Embus project for Kestrel was divided into two key phases. The first being, firstly, we had to actually have an Embus capability, which requires you know, extensive investment in terms of aircraft lighting modifications, compliance documentation, and yeah, and also establishing a culture because you've got a predominantly day operation uh, for the last 25, 30 years that has now turned its attention to night operations. And so therefore that comes with a cultural shift. And that first year, 2017, allowed us to do that uh, with our amendment to our Kestrel's AOC being granted on late November, 30th of November, 2017, to conduct Envis operations and uh, Envis rating training. Now, concurrently, because 
we knew that Ember's firefighting would take some time, particularly from an approval perspective, because it just it was unregulated. Uh, it was not being conducted routinely within Australia. We we started that project uh, concurrently uh, in early 2017, and that really was a paperwork exercise, you know, supported by you know safety cases, supported by risk assessments, and and the appropriate paperwork to gain approval or can to conduct trials uh, or to gain or to gain exemptions against uh, 82.6 CAO 82.6 to conduct uh, those Embers trials. Uh, so. I guess at the end of November, once we had our call it an Embers capability, that was at about that time that there was increased momentum or appetite for an Embers firefighting trial uh, to be sponsors or sponsored by uh, Emergency Management Victoria. Uh, our internal, I guess, project phase two, which was the firefighting, was again split into a number of you know, sub-phases, Firstly, we needed to establish our own techniques and procedures and internal capability. And then phase two was to conduct an operational test and evaluation where that neatly fitted into Emergency Management Victoria's trial that they were to conduct in early 2018. As part of that, when like looking at existing operations and the history and things out there, what did you guys find out about it in terms of the history of the night of you know, NVG uh, not firefighting overseas. So from my point, I mean, the managing director, Ray Cronin, is, is someone who's is regularly uh, in contact with innovative leaders and industry within within the firefighting sector across, across the world, particularly in the United States. So he was particularly au fait with uh, operations that were being conducted in California and so forth, not to mention our... We had relationships with Coulson Aviation, who, who come to Australia each year, who were conducting MVG firefighting, uh, and you know, extensive research for myself online, and, and conversations with those you know key people, particularly in CASA as well, and standards, and and having a feel for how this would all unfold. And so, oh, I was very confident that we could establish safe techniques and procedures. The little, the little bits I, little bits I looked up. Like I think the first people tried it, like in the nineteen seventies, like you know, on really early model NVGs. So that concept has been there for a while. But I think two aircraft collided back around then. That basically turned everyone off it for about 20, 20 or twenty five years. So it seems to be yeah, in, in the last twenty years it's sort of become a thing again. Oh, that's right. And I think when there's a need, and again, you made a business case, when people are willing to invest, particularly the agencies, when they see the benefit, because they the investment is substantial because you're now talking about, so in, in our current approvals, uh, CASA has only approved us to conduct any operations with an IFR machine with two pilot operations and their latest generation MVG equipment. So yeah, that comes that comes at a cost. It's so a chicken and the egg, you know, isn't what, it? What cost do you put on safety? Yeah, that's right. Because for a commercial commercial company, yeah, you've basically got to put that outlay in advance to then have the capability, uh, and you can't basically have any uh, jobs coming in until you've got that capability. So, yeah, very. Oh, it is, and and yeah, from from my perspective personally, hats off to the our managing director for doing that, having the foresight, having the uh, determination to do that. Because yes, it did come at a cost. That is that. Uh, 
again, there's been no financial benefit to date, but at the end of the day, it's put us in a very, very strong position from a capability perspective. So, uh, uh, you know, that's, uh, yeah, it, it certainly has been, you know, nothing lost in that respect. Um, but where we, you know, where we go from here, oh, you did mention, sorry, if I just track back. Yeah, I mean, it, it has had a troubled history, but you're right. Uh, certainly technology is caught up and also culture, methods, procedures and, you know, within organisations and experience has caught up. And, you know, our focus was always, the mantra was, crawl, you know, crawl, walk, run. You know, we it was always about a building block approach and with, you know, with consolidation. So establish the procedures, the techniques, it slowly or incrementally increase the complexity of the environment bring the aircraft lower. It was such you know, such a staged, controlled process before we even entered the fire ground with any type of live fire. All right, and I know there's some commercial stuff there, uh, so I'll squeeze you for as much as I can and just push back on the things you can't talk about. But if you talk about more nuts and bolts things, so did you go and select an aircraft for this role or was it more the fact that you had aircraft in the fleet already that you sort of then adapted to, to put towards No, this? we didn't. No, this was uh, – we always had that. Well, at the end of the day – uh, one of the aircraft that Kestrel's, Kestrel has contracted to NAFSI in Victoria is um, it's a, a all-year-round capability for emergency management in Victoria. For anything outside of it, it could be firefighting, it could be you know, any type of disaster, community uh, relief, so forth, uh, to the government. So that aircraft was the, the optimum aircraft for us to evolve into an, an Embus platform. Uh, because it gave us then a capability under that contract, which was not required by contract, but it was, again, something that we could utilise supernumerary to contract. Uh, and it also, we also um, modificate, we made modifications to our Bell 206 Long Ranger as a training platform. So we always had a vision that we needed a, uh, a training platform and we needed an operational platform. And it just so happens that that operational platform is also a... A, uh, a Type 2 uh, medium helicopter fire bomber. And with all of the, I guess, necessary role equipment being, you know, belly tank and snorkel, uh, which was the ideal role equipment for uh, Envis firefighting versus having a bucket, you know, or, or a long line uh, below the aircraft. Uh, so it was the ideal platform, but there was always the vision that we would be pursuing Envis aerial firefighting. So therefore, again, Adapting the 412 just made sense. Now, the Invis gear itself, it's, it's been 10 years since I've even held a set of goggles. So where are we at with um, equipment-wise? Uh, where are you sourcing them from? And you know all the same restrictions that used to be there in terms of field review. Can you basically just give us a quick update on, on where the actual technology is at? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we, for the trials, for the firefighting trials, we uh, utilised our fourth-generation uh, image intensifiers. So these were sourced from the point trading group out of uh, Melbourne, who actually manufacture Southern Australian manufactured product. And these are, as I mentioned, you know, the fourth generation. When we're talking fourth generation, what we're really talking about is ideally that they have reduced blooming effects and and they've got a. I'm not sure if you remember Mick, but they really, when we talk about performance in MVG, we talk about figure of merit, which is you know, figure of merit is essentially resolution 
times the signal to noise ratio. So, you know, essentially how much can, you know, what gets to the eyepiece lens can separate from the background noise and, and how clear is that picture is what we're talking about. And it comes out as a number and older generation Gen 3s and earlier that you would have been using were going to be around a figure of merit of around sort of 16, 15, 16, 1700. So fourth generation now have jumped into the 2000 plus and the ones we were using were around, you know, 21 to 2400 because it's established at the factory and they do vary. And then we were using also um, a, uh, a, a black and white image versus the green image. And this was the first time I'd used a black and white image, but at the end of the day, it doesn't make a lot of difference uh, from what I've used now. Image-wise, you do. I, I find terrain interpretation, uh, you know, very, very easy on both. But if getting back to the application of those image intensifiers for what we were trying to achieve, when you now got to consider that we're using MVGs not just over a low contrast environment, we're using MVGs all of a sudden with a huge bright light source. So the anti-blooming effects were particularly important and that, that was a real positive for these generation or, and, and, and this product. Yeah, because that's my biggest question. I remember, you know, I see landing in an airfield with, with you know, uh, lights and things like that on. Uh, it was, you know, past the MVG, you just couldn't even look at that area with the MVG. It's just basically blown out. And I was thinking if you're operating at low level over fires, you know, what would that effect would be like trying to fly as you're trying to look at the hills and then having that bloom effect from the fire underneath? It's still a hazard. I don't think you're ever going to get away from that. What I will is, is I'll... I'll go back to your original comment about landing in an airfield. With these current generation goggles, you wouldn't look away from the lights in a goggle in that environment. Okay. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't upset the goggles whatsoever. So there is a big difference. There is a big jump in technology in that respect. However, in the fire ground, yes, the fire, and depending on its intensity and size, will still affect the goggles. And the biggest issue for us that I didn't see, which was a learning point from the live trials was that in the EMS world when we are conducting landings to say a trauma site which is a temporary uh, HLS that's been set up by the emergency services and you can imagine what that's like with red and blue beacons flashing and lights everywhere lighting this trauma site and you landing in that environment under MVGs can be challenging but the point there is that you're essentially always landing. And the difference with firefighting, and particularly helicopter fire bombing, is that you're always going to be conducting an overshoot, essentially, is what you're saying. So what I didn't process while I was developing the procedures was that the lack of contrast in the overshoot. And, what that, and that's something that is easily controlled. It's about having an intimate knowledge of what is in that specific overshoot and you know, be a day reconnaissance, be it a reconnaissance and dummy approaches and so forth. So everything, again, can be controlled, mitigated from a risk perspective. But certainly that was one of those issues where you still can't get away from that blooming effect um, and you're flying, being prepared for what's happened leading into the fire and then post the fire when you're climbing away. Gotcha. Okay, so you're talking about basically coming into the fire, you've got the bright lights, and beyond that and the actual where you're going to be flying through for your overshoot is actually hard to, to see beyond the... Yeah, yeah oh, gotcha. very much so. And this is, again, where the two-pilot operation is an advantage because the, the second pilot 
which you know, has a number of roles in terms of supporting the flying pilot in terms of performance of the aircraft. But the, what they're also doing is maintaining an external scan under their field of regard, which maintains the required vis- visibility and visual, visual resolution if there is the uh, event that the flying pilot does lose uh, visual reference. So again, that's, you know, that's the risk mitigation as well. It's not just the reconnaissance of the overshoot and the entire crew having an intimate knowledge of the hazards in the overshoot. It's also maintenance of the appropriate visibility and visual reference by, uh, by the second pilot as well. How's the focus, oh, sorry, the, the smoke affect them? I remember you can sort of fly through, you know, light cloud with it and, and that's one of the, the traps you'd be flying along on MVGs and then actually flying the cloud by mistake because you're actually in the edges of the cloud before you, you sort of realised it. How, how does the smoke sort of impact on that? Yeah, and that's, again, that's something that I think future further industry trials are going to take. These are some of the more practical elements that we need to have a look at because, We've looked at controlled fires, which have, you know, they were producing smoke, but not filling the fire ground or filling the environment with smoke. So there was no residual haze or huge plumes. Yes, we threw, you know, yes, we had smoke we had to deal with. But at the end of the day, we're not changing the rules. So again, it's no different to the current rule set in terms of EMS flying through, you know, poor visibility, dust, whether it be uh, rain. You've still got to maintain that required visual reference uh, and visibility. So therefore, your your run into the fire may not be as it would be by day because you need to maintain that visibility, which is harder, and avoid the smoke. But at the end of the day, we're not accepting anything less in terms of safety. We're not flying through huge plumes of smoke in order to get you know water onto the fire. Yeah, sure. Other equipment, like, are you guys using FLIR as a, you know, as a backup or another tool? Like, is that fitted to the machine? Uh, no, it's not. Um, FLU was being used during the trials to essentially provide that surveillance overwatch what it, uh, and certainly to gather data as well on the effectiveness of the, uh, of the aircraft at night uh, on the fire ground. Where it is obviously useful is, is you can see a lot more in terms of hot spots at night in a more benign fire uh, situation. Uh, particularly a blackened area where a fire has been through, you'll see areas where there is residual heat that you can't pick up, obviously, by day. So the aircraft can then conduct operations or or suppress that element for the next day. So, so again, it's still being used as more of a command and control and surveillance type uh, in it. So in cooperation with the the water bombing aircraft, but not uh, an essential piece of the puzzle. In terms of you can still conduct Embers firefighting without the FLUR, but having the FLUR above is just going to make it, uh, I guess it's going to augment that capability. Are the fire agencies talking about actually, you know, just using it as a standalone command and control sort of platform? Like take away the actual dropping of the water, but just having a machine airborne that can do that sort of thing, you know, pick up the, the uh, residual heat and, uh, and drive. Well, they already, they already do. Okay, sure. So, uh, yeah, there's, there's already approvals for, in industry for uh, aerial firefighting support, which is exactly that. So, you know, aircraft flitted with FLIR by day or by night, so there's an MVG capability as well within industry that allows the agencies to, to, to conduct that. Okay, cool. So we're basically now just talking about the actual dropping stuff of the, of the, yeah. of the water. 
Uh, crewing, so you mentioned basic restriction at the moment is two pilots. Do you um, do you have anyone in the back as an extra set of eyes or are you just running with the, the two crew in the front? No, no, it's only uh, two crew in the front. Uh, we, uh, I mean, this is about practicality as well. Uh, the more people on board, it's like any helicopter, the less payload you know, you're going to be dropping onto the fire. So particularly when we're talking a medium helicopter like the Bell 412. So... We're at the moment operating with uh, two pilots uh, and how that will evolve in the future will be the subject of industry and regulated discussions. But yes, our, our again, mantra being you know, building block approach, our Embus project was split into a number of phases, but the key, the key aims were first, can we position the aircraft safely and effectively to drop water onto the fire? So that was number one. To, to fill the tank, the, uh, the Bell 412 at Kestrel uses a Conair tank that is, uh, or the Conair 85K firefighting system, which is a 1,500-litre tank, which can be filled by a self-contained snorkel and hover pump, or it can be filled on the ground. So we elected to conduct ground filling first because that was just a safe uh, operation, and then go through the trials of positioning uh, the aircraft for safe water drops and effective water drops. Once we'd achieved those aims and had that capability, um, then we looked at the, the hover fill. Yep. Because at the end of the day, if there was no point going into the hover fill. If you, if you can't, drop the air, can't drop the payload safely, then what's the point in exploring the, the fill techniques? Yeah, yeah, gotcha. So we wanted to get that, set that first. Okay, now that we can do that and we're comfortable and we've... And we've uh, transition that to the fire ground. Great. Now let's look at more efficient operations or expanding the scope through the snorkel fill. So the last part of our project was conducting the hovel fill uh, operations, which, again, are, they're on the cusp of approval with CASA at the moment. They've all been completed. And that's something that can certainly be done safely. And it just gives us that uh, additional capability, depending on where the fire might be. And, and this, this is what it's all about. And you know, you want to be efficient in your water source to where you're dropping the, dropping the payload. Uh, you, we really talk about water release cycles in a, in a fuel load. So maximising or optimising that is, is key. But also now, this is again another focus of future industry trials will be the effects of fatigue. Because certainly something that I personally found is that within MVG, if I take day firefighting, there's always a period where you can relax. So once you've come off, say, the hover fill, you've been focused, holding position, getting the appropriate load for, pay, uh, for power and hover performance. You've made, gone through that critical flight profile of departure, and now there is an element of cruise while you're relaxing before you go into the drop phase. In, under MVG, what I found, and again, you have to uh, measure that against it's an evolving capability, but I found that there was no rest. You're always, you know, there is a, yeah, absolutely. Concentration levels were very high. So naturally then fatigue, the onset of fatigue is a lot earlier. Uh, And that's an advantage of the ground fill. So these are all of these things, because the ground fill allows you two to three minutes of sitting on the ground, stretching your neck, relaxing, okay, bang, right, and then getting your mind back into the job. And so, again, while it might not be efficient as the hover fill, it 
it's all different toolboxes for the environment you'll find yourself in. And, and this is where those industry trials are going to, they're going to start to take that uh, quantitative measure of, you know, fatigue, cycles, effectiveness of water drops and so forth. Could I mentioned in terms of workload, doing those hover uh, fills at night on, on the MVGs looking out over the, over the water at low level, like that's, that's going to be a high workload. Well, it is. It is. Um, and again, look, we're not, when we say we're hovering over water, we have to be uh, conscious that we're not hovering over water per se from a visual reference perspective. So for us to conduct, you know, we're talking about aircraft with, without a uh, overwater hover approval. You know, there's no four-axis autopilot. So therefore we are, you know, the controls are that we are using visual references of the bank of the water or some type of solid structure. So therefore, you know, when you might say you're hovering over water, but you sort of almost don't feel like you are because yeah. your visual reference and your hover references are going to be, uh, think, you know, solid structures or obstacles associated with the bank. Surprisingly, I found height control over the water very, very uh, quite easy because something different, different to the military, Mick, is that in the military, you and I were trained to have as little white light to present the aircraft as a target to others as possible. But in the civil sector, we flood the area with white light. Yeah, okay. So uh, you know, to maximise our yeah, visual reference and the performance of the goggles. So when, and, and this aircraft is, uh, has been modified with a, lot, with a lot of white light spilling out the front and spilling underneath the aircraft. And from the hover trials, we even have a light lighting the snorkel as well. So when you're in the hover and you're in that 10-foot hover over the water, you actually do get unaided through peripheral vision. You get an unaided, uh, a really good assessment of what your vertical position is. So um, it was actually holding height wasn't really an issue whatsoever. More so, again, is, is holding position uh, due to uh, that uh, now a loss of peripheral vision through the tubes. Gotcha. Now, is anyone doing uh, buckets at all? I know you guys aren't on your trials, but with the stuff you saw overseas, is anyone actually using buckets rather than snorkels? So there's no one approved at present that I'm aware of for buckets in Australia. CASA's guidance from uh, standards is that approvals will consist of a belly tank and snorkel uh, and so that's what our approval uh, is specific to a belly tank and snorkel. And so as, and I'm aware that the, the other approval in Australia at the moment, again, is for a, uh, a belly tank and snorkel only. Sure. Yeah, often you see the fire size during a day and there's, you know, there's aircraft following each other around as one's coming out of the, the dip, the next one's sort of on approach. You know, my, I'm imagining for the MVG staff, it's only going to be one or two aircraft in an area. Uh, and so your traffic and your deconfliction then is going to be a much simpler affair? Oh, it is. Um, yeah, I mean, yes, it can get, on a campaign fire, it can get very busy. But again, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of coordination with the air attack uh, supervisor who's above, sitting above coordinating the aircraft. At night, uh, yes, you could argue there's going to be increased risk, but at the same time, again, levering off your knowledge of MVG flight, there's rather than the aircraft just coming in from all parts of the state, maybe to a campaign fire and discussing what separation procedures are over the radio, 
MVG flight will always be a deliberate task, which will be prefaced by you know, briefings, coordination briefings, any type of separation procedures. So all of that risk is controlled uh, through that more deliberate tasking and deliberate conduct of the operation. I just don't think you'll get the traffic as well. Like it is uh, to be able no. to turn, turn out an aircraft at night with two MVG uh, qualified pilots and with approvals. Like it's just not going to be something everyone can do. Well, absolutely. At the moment, we are the only currently approved operator active in country. So it's only going to be us. And you can assume for the next fire season and, and whatever uh, capability that the fire agencies are looking for, again, it's going to be operators known to each other. And again, it's going to be any type of deliberate, it's going to be a deliberate activity. Fantastic. Well, Richard, I think we've covered a fair bit of ground there. And unfortunately, I just do have a, a time constraint on my end uh, we spoke about beforehand. Uh, but look, I, I think we've given enough people here of a, a taste of, of some of the background you guys have gone through. In terms of, of people looking online to find out more information about Kestrel and I guess see photos and, and maybe any of the videos that you guys have done, what's the easiest places for people to go and, and check out? Yeah, so Kestrel's website, uh, so Kestrel Aviation, also a Facebook page as well. Uh, and also, um, there's been uh, releases through Emergency Management Victoria and uh, and and different um, government departments within uh, Victoria as well. So I, I did. So also, Kestrel will be present with Coulson Aviation at Rotatec in late May 2018 up in Queensland. Yeah, there's plenty going on, and there'll be a, a, a lot more to say as we as we develop because you know, most and this is really important for not just. Kestrel, but industry and the agencies managing public and you know, public expectations is the capability is going to continue to develop at a walking, safe walking pace versus an exponential expansion. There will be a lot of information. I think it'll go quiet for some time before there'll there'll be a bit of a burst before the next fire season. Fantastic. Okay, well, I might uh, catch you up there and. It's been uh, great to catch up again. And uh, again, really appreciate all the efforts that uh, you put into my training. So thanks, Rich. Good on you, Mick, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. You've just been listening to Rich Butterworth from Kestrel Aviation. There with all the inside goss on their new capability. The normal setup for these episodes uh, over on the website at Rotary Wing Show. I've got photos of Rich and the night fighting Uh, sorry, the night firefighting ops there, if you want to have a a little bit more about what that looks like and and what they're doing. There's also links there to the uh, Kestrel website. If you've got some more detailed questions that you want to be able to ask Rich, you can leave them as a a comment there on the blog post or email them to me at feedback at rotarywingshow.com and I'll pass those through. If you ever want to send in any audio feedback or to share a quick story uh, from your corner of the world or to plug your company, It'd be great to start stitching in a little bit more of these uh, sort of audio segments into the episodes. So you can send me a voice memo, just record it on your phone and shoot it through on, on email. Uh, or you can use the recording widget on the website sidebar uh, and use that to record a message and send that through. Thanks again to the small team supporting the show on Patreon for helping to offset the, the bandwidth costs. You know, if you're feeling generous and want to help keep me in the good books with my wife, then any support through rotarywingshow.com forward slash support is very much appreciated. I got to sit down and spend an hour on Skype last night with a Wessex pilot from the Falklands War. It will be, actually be an episode coming up here in a couple of weeks, 
But I'll put the raw interview inside uh, Patreon today as a, a way of thanks. So if you're hearing this, uh, that audio should be up there to, to check out. The next episode is actually sitting on my hard drive uh, right at the moment. So it's all recorded and I've just got to get in and start the uh, editing. So it shouldn't be too far away. Again, it's going to be with a, another ex-Australian Army aviator, uh, but something a little different this time in that we're going to be doing a kind of a, a book review on a leadership book called Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin and seeing how their ideas basically transition across and how they look in an aviation setting. I know from emailing with a couple of you guys that uh, some of you already know who Jocko is. For everyone else, he's a he's an ex-US Navy SEAL uh, over on the Jocko podcast uh, he talks about military history leadership and jiu-jitsu mainly uh, so it's, it's not necessarily aviation based but it's obviously a lot of applicable stuff we can bring across he's been on the the joe rogan show a few times and he's even filled in for tim ferris on his podcast if those names are, are familiar to anyone so anyone to get a bit more of a, a head start i guess or more background uh, before the next episode when we uh, basically dissect and go through his book uh, you can search for jocko podcast uh, episodes 69 is a good one about a marine FA-18 uh, driver. And episode 115 includes a, a short bit about some uh, crazy Kyra flying in the middle of a, a Taliban uh, gunfight. Until then, go and look at World Helicopter Day and see if you can be involved and, uh, and share the fun there. And otherwise, uh, fly safe and we'll be back soon.